Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would read some patron emails. But before we do that, let's um, introduce the podcast. This podcast is called Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is from a patron that I just got today. She is, uh, I won't read the email, but I'll just summarize. I'm going to keep it anonymous. She's a therapist. She used to work as a professional dominatrix. Uh, When she was a dominatrix, it was completely legal. It was totally legit. And everything was on the up and up. And then she decided she wanted to be a therapist. So she went to grad school and then she graduated. And as is typical to people soon after graduation, she worked at an agency, mental health agency, and she found it to be very exhausting work and not for her. So she now wants to go into private practice, but she, um, and she also wants to become a certified sex therapist. But as she quits her job at the agency and goes into private practice, she knows that she's, it's going to take her a while to build up her practice. And so at first, she's not going to have any money. And so she's thinking, well, how do I make money while I am building my practice? And one of the ways she knows how to make a lot of money in a short amount of time is to be a professional dominatrix. You know, she could be a, a waitress or something, but it's like when you earn 10 times as much at this other job that you're good at, why not just do that? And so she was asking me, is this ethical? Is it ethical for someone, a therapist, to also be a professional dominatrix? Well, I want you to think about that out there. Is is it an ethical violation for a therapist to work as a professional dominatrix as well? Or to take it another level, for a uh, therapist to also work as a sex worker or something. You know, one's legal, one is considered illegal in most situations. So those are just kind of some questions here. Um, So the knee-jerk reaction for many, I'm positive, would be absolutely not. It is absolutely a ethical violation and should never be done. This is, you know, bad practice. I was just at a conference recently, and so I'll just tell you what happened because I'm dying to vent about it. So as some of you know, I went to a conference and I gave a presentation on using social media to enhance your clinical practice. And in that presentation, I briefly, but I think thoroughly went over the various different ethical considerations that people, you know, who want to use social media to enhance their practice have to consider as therapists. There's issues of confidentiality, multiple relationship, professional relationships, competency, privacy, um, harm to clients, benefit to the society. You know, there's just, there's a lot of different principles that have been mulled over in a scholarly manner for decades. And I have been mulling over for many years myself. And, and since I started this podcast and before I started the podcast, I have been uh, revisiting the ethical codes and how, because I use social media to enhance my practice. And so I have been, you know, thinking about it a lot. But in the presentation, the the, uh, the sort of vibe or thesis that I had in the presentation was that it's totally ethically possible to have a podcast or have a YouTube channel as a therapist or have a Twitter or have a Tumblr or have a Snapchat or something. And 
be uh, and be a therapist. You you can be a therapist and absolutely use social media to enhance your practice. And if you do it in the right way, which isn't actually that hard, you can absolutely avoid ethical violations. So that was my talk. I, and so, you know, and I fielded questions from the audience and there were, you know, a couple questions and concerns about ethics, but really I, I think I just presented it as there's, I'm, I've been doing it for 10 years. Other therapists have been doing it for a long time and everything's fine. As long as you just follow some, some guidelines, you'll be okay. And so I didn't, I didn't ask the question, is it unethical to do this? Because I feel like it's an obvious answer that it's totally fine to have a podcast or have a YouTube channel and operate ethically, right? I think all of you who listen to this podcast can attest to that, I guess. I don't know. So I give my talk and I end it. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, um, hey, I really liked your talk. And so, you know, we're chatting. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I leave and, um, you know, the, the, my class at the conference is over. And later in the day, I go to another class and it's, it's on social media. It's like the ethics of using social media. So this is, so mine was like how to use social media to enhance your practice. And this other class was just on the ethics of using social media. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I wonder what they have to say. So I went to that class and it was that guy who came up to me at the end of the class. He was teaching the class and I thought his, his talk, he, has a, he had a very particular kind of slow but deliberate and thorough style of teaching, which I took me a while to get used to, but I liked it eventually. But the, uh, he opened it up to a discussion to, to the group at the end. He's like, you know, let's talk about the ethics of using social media. And it was kind of broad. It was just like, using social media at all, even for your own private uses, you know, like your own private Twitter page or your own private Instagram feed or something. And the consensus among those who were talking was that using social media at all as a therapist was inherently unethical. <laughs> There's this one woman and God bless her, you know, she's older she, and I've and I've said this before on the podcast and because I've seen it before. I have seen older people. It's usually older people. And by older, I'm talking like over 40, you know. Uh, these people, and I'm over 40, but uh, there are, but particularly if you're over 60 or 70, they will, when you bring up the idea of social media, Facebook, you know, YouTube, podcasting, they will say that therapists can't do that sort of thing, that it's, a, it's inherently an ethical violation. This goes back to an old school notion prior to the internet existing that therapists need to be completely off the grid in terms of a public uh, face. Like you can't have any public, um, you can't have a public, you can't do anything public, which of course is ridiculous. Freud was public from the beginning. Jung was, was public. Adler was public. You know, Melanie Klein, Karen Horney, uh, all the greats had a public persona. They gave interviews. Uh, Winnicott had a radio show back in the 50s, and you can actually still access that. So people have been using, so, you know, so there's that. Uh, but anyway, I just want to say what this woman said. She's like, she's like, um, so my husband works in computers and he knows everything about computers. 
And what he said was that everything on the internet is not secure, that anything can be hacked into or found out. So therefore, I have decided that it's unethical for therapists to have even a Facebook page. So I canceled my Facebook page. So she's talking about her personal Facebook page, you know, just just her personal page where she might post pictures of her grandkids or something. You know, on my Facebook, it's like I post pictures of my cats and dogs and stuff. You know, it's like it's unethical to have a Facebook page. This is not the first time I've heard this. I've heard other therapists, in fact, professors say the exact same thing. In fact, there was a professor, and I'm not going to name him because there are people who love this guy, who said in class, I wasn't a student, I was, I was his, in essence, kind of a supervisor, but he told his students that it was unethical for therapists to have a personal Facebook page. And yet, I know he has a Facebook page. <laughs> so it's like he's, he's not even following his own teaching. Again, and this, this teacher, this professor, is a teacher of ethics. He teaches ethics at a university, and his position was it was unethical for a therapist to have a Facebook page. So just to um, you know, go into some of the specifics on, on this, uh, and I don't have time to go into it all, but it's the ethical codes do very rarely do the ethical codes and the standard of care for that matter dictate a very specific rule for us. For example, there are uh, considerations when a client gives us a gift. But some people will interpret that as a rule. They will say, you absolutely cannot take a gift from a client. It's unethical to take a gift from a client. That is not true. It is not an ethical violation to take a gift from a client. It is dependent on the circumstances and your process. If you just willy-nilly took the gift and didn't think about it, then that that could lead to a complaint being justified. But if you uh, considered it, consulted, took it, you know, and did a lot of things around that, and, you know, same behavior, still take the, the gift, it could absolutely be considered not an ethical violation. That's the way eth- ethics works. It's not a matter of rules. It's a matter of your process and the circumstances thereof. So when you are using social media and you have a Facebook page, uh, I mean, Surely having your own private Facebook page in which you have privacy settings that deny uh, access to your clients and you don't friend your clients and you post fairly innocuous things on Facebook like, you know, pictures of your hamburger that you ate. I'm pretty sure that's not even if your client did happen to come across it or was so interested and hacked into your account and saw, you know, the picture of your dog and your hamburger that you ate. I'm fairly sure that no ethical violation would be found. Clients are not harmed by seeing the fucking food you eat or your fucking pet. Everything is fine, kids. Don't have a heart attack, you know. Now, if you're posting stuff like, I hate my clients, or uh, I hate men, or I hate women, or I hate Republicans, or I hate Democrats, or I hate young people, or I hate people who complain, or I hate depressed people, or, you know, regardless of where you're posting that, yeah, that could lead to you having a viable complaint waged against you, because if your client catches wind of that, it's terrible. Plus, the fact that you have that rattling around in your head is questionable anyway. But 
uh, so that, you know, in a nutshell, that's the consideration, you know, you, so, and if you have a public Facebook page or you have a podcast like I do, or a YouTube channel, um, where you either talk about clin- certainly if you're talking about clinical things that can't be considered an ethical violation, if you're a teacher, there are absolutely oppor- you know times when your you know your college course will be videotaped and posted on YouTube. Well, is that an is that an ethical violation? No. And even if you're just self-disclosing about something, like you're on Twitter and you're like, um, I don't know, like. Uh, I hate drivers in Seattle (laughs) or, you know, oh, the Seattle rain is really making me depressed this year or something like, you know, that's all fine. It's not likely that that's going to harm one of your clients. Now, if it did harm one of your clients and you had a client that had a very specific issue that would be harmed by that, then you have to consider that. that, That's why it has to be case by case. It's you can't set a rule on this anyway. So. Can a therapist work as a professional dominatrix? And again, the the community, as far as I can tell, would say no, because they don't even think it's okay for you to have a fucking Facebook page. <laughs> Sorry for all the swearing. Um, all right. So in a nutshell, there's no ethical code that says you cannot be a professional dominatrix. There's no law that forbids this sort of thing. Uh, it's this... The, uh, uh, I always try to make an analogy to other kinds of situations to help illuminate this one, because, you know, the thing about this one is like, depending on how comfortable you are with kink, you might look at this and say like professional dominatrix, that's a dirty, filthy, shameful thing. Well, you know, that's, that's your, that's your vibe about it. You know, that's your sex negativity vibe about it. it has nothing to do with ethics or laws. So let's let's get away from professional dominatrix and let's just look at other jobs. So let's say a therapist was also a bartender. It's the same ethical consideration. If, you know, because the ethical consideration is what if one of her clients happens to come across her as a professional dominatrix? Either sees her at an event or sees a video or sees her website or even tries to hire her. I mean, maybe her professional dominatrix name is, you know, like uh, queen bee or something. And she is, uh, it's not clear that she's the same person. So one of her clients is like, Oh, I think I'm going to hire dominatrix. They hire queen bee. And then queen bee shows up at the house and they're like, Oh my God, you're my therapist. Okay. So, uh, when that happens, that's when, so, so that's the dual relationship, right? That's, that's the potential harm. And yeah, that absolutely could harm one of your clients. And so there are ways of, of accounting for that, but let me, before getting into that, let me just make an analogy to, to other kinds of jobs. If you're a bartender, you could a client could walk into your bar not knowing you work there and then go, oh, my God, you're a bartender in this bar. Now, that's a sticky situation, but it's not an inherent ethical violation. There's just things you have to do to avoid it. For example, with the bartender example, all you would have to do is just tell all your clients when you first meet them is say, by the way, sometimes I work as a bartender at this one bar. And I would appreciate it if you didn't come into that bar because ethically speaking, I can't interface with it. It, it gets, it's difficult for me to interface with you outside of the office. And essentially, if you walked into, into my bar, I would have to go home and I could lose my job. So I'd appreciate it if you didn't come into that bar. You can go to all the other bars, but just not that one. 
And if you ever have questions about that, you know, feel free to ask. I, I, I work as a bartender because I'm, I'm still building my practice and I need that money or something like that. Or if you're also a physician, say you're a physician and you're a therapist. Well, you know, what if you get hired as a physician? Maybe you're an OBGYN and you're, you know, your uh, client hires you as your, the, you know, to deliver their baby. Well, you know, you're going to say, I can't do that. That's a dual role. That's not necessary. I'm not going to do that sort of thing. What if you were also a plumber or a waiter or a podcaster, for example? My clients, some of them listen to this podcast. I have an inherent dual relationship with those clients. Does that mean I'm automatically breaking the law or breaking some ethical code? No, it means that I have to absolutely consider it for the benefit of my clients. And I have and I do and have sought consultation and have you know, thought about it a lot, read a lot, um, you know, taken classes essentially on the topic. And, you know, there's, there's ways you can account for it. The same goes for if you are in a small town, this is always a good example, whenever you want to talk about dual relationships, is you're in a small town, and you, this town has 500 people, and you're a therapist in that town. Well, the, and, and you have, you have three kids, and there's one daycare in the entire town. And that daycare owner is one of, is your client. Well, guess what? You now are in a position where you either have to let your kids roam free in your backyard with no, no care, or you have to take your kids to that daycare in which your client is the person who takes care of your kids. And in most people in big cities, they'd be like, oh my God, that's terrible. You can't, you can't, you can't have your client taking care of your kids. That's, that's ethically wrong. No, it is not. It's only wrong if you did it like without any other options, but in small communities, you don't have any other options. Okay. So again, let's just go over the ethical uh, considerations and what to do. So Given the way that some clients might react, extra precautions are probably necessary. So being a professional dominatrix is different than a bartender because of the way our culture is. Our culture teaches people to shame this sort of thing, be scared of it, and clients, we can't expect them to be outside of that culture. They're in that culture. So we need to, we can't just, you know, uh, forge forward as if culture doesn't exist. So for example... Uh, a, a bad situation could be, as I was describing earlier, you're working with a client, you've been working with them for one year, and they randomly come across your website, your dominatrix website, and they see you beating men in a BD, BDSM video. That would really be shocking to most clients. Not all clients. Some clients would just be like, oh, okay, my client's a professional dominatrix, no biggie. But some clients would be really shocked by that. They'd just be like, whoa, What? My therapist is a professional dominatrix. Isn't that naughty? Isn't that gross? I, I don't think I can trust my therapist anymore. These are wrong thoughts. They're, uh, you know, uh, regressive thoughts, but they're thoughts that we can expect people in our culture who have been pr propagandized a Victorian sexual ethic to think. And this client might be so afraid that they might, terminate from you. They might just suddenly just say, I, you know, they might even be embarrassed. It's like, wait, what do people think? Do they think I'm, a, I'm associating myself with this like filthy person? And they could suddenly terminate with you. 
and that would result in client harm. It's a reasonable situation that we could imagine happening. And then the client after termination could, could maybe even complain about you. And so we don't want client harm to happen, and we definitely don't want um, you to be complained against. So to account for what I think to be you know a very possible situation is, number one, you might want to limit your exposure to the public. If your clients can never figure out that you're a professional dominatrix, then this scenario will never happen, right? So if your website, so I could imagine like you have a, a, your, you have a website or you work for an organization and your face is covered or something, you, or it's, uh, it's, uh, affected enough that you don't really look like who you are and you go by a different name, right? And say a client comes across your, the website and the listing and hires you. And then you find out who that person is prior to, you know, working with them. And you're like, oh, that's one of my clients. And so you tell your organization or whomever, and you just gently redirect them to a different professional dominatrix. You say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm all booked up, or I'm I'm full, or I quit, or, or whatever. You just say that, and then the client never knows that that was you. You also mentioned in your email about maybe doing movies, like videos and this sort of thing. And so that will increase the likelihood. Again, if you're wearing a mask, then not a problem. You know, one of those like, you know, I don't know, one of those masks that just goes over your eyes, like a superhero mask thingy. I don't know. I can imagine a dominatrix doing that, right? Uh, so, but if you need to just needed to show your face, which again is totally fine, uh, there might be ways of limiting that. Like maybe there's a paywall to the site, and and so only people who pay get to see your face or something. I don't know. So there's, there's probably practices that you can do within the dominatrix community uh, that would limit the ability for clients to even know that it's you. By the way, I actually just fielded this question from a, a colleague of mine who was th- uh, thinking about going back into sex work uh, and be, be, for the same reason, because they were uh, struggling in their private practice and they wanted to uh, make make money to, uh, while, while their practice was building, they wanted to make money because they were having a hard time paying their bills. And they thought, well, you know, I could probably make a, you know, a minimum wage a, as a waitress, or I could be a sex worker and only have to work a couple hours a week and be able to pay all my bills. And so, um, it's a similar kind of question. It's different though, because it's, it's, uh, as far as I understand, it's illegal. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it, maybe there's a way to make it legal in Seattle. That's an area I don't know about. Anyway, so so that, that's one thing is is just try to limit your exposure to the public so that clients can never really even figure out who you are. You know, even if they found out you were a professional dominatrix, they're like, oh, um, at the very least, they wouldn't have have access to you as in terms of your content. Uh, number two is getting extra consultation and documenting all that we you know me and my consultant or supervisor discussed in this in this meeting we discussed these three ethical principles and how we can account for potential client harm and here is our procedure and here is my policy and da 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 um number three is maybe something in your disclosure statement and informed consent form 
that explains this like this this would be a way you could really account for any issues if if every time a client hired you you said so by the way i'm a professional dominatrix i do not mix these two professions when i'm a therapist i'm just a therapist when i'm a dominatrix i'm just a dominatrix i will never uh, blend the two professions with you um, but I just wanted to let you know that I also had this other job and I didn't want you to be shocked by it. And if you didn't want to work with me because of that, then that's okay. So just, and you know, if they have any questions, you can sort of do that. That's what I do with people about, you know, my podcast. I say, so just let you know, I have a podcast and I'm on the internet giving talks about various different things. And I just didn't want you to be surprised if you came across that sort of stuff. Is that okay? Do you still want to hire me? That kind of stuff. It, you know, it, it's easy to uh, manage in that way. And you just give clients the choice. If they hate it and they're like, oh, no, I don't want a therapist who podcasts. Or, oh, no, I don't want a therapist who's a professional dominatrix. Then that is totally fine. They knew before they hired you and they have the choice to not hire you. There's plenty of other therapists in the sea. Number four is maybe only work with kink-friendly clients until you don't need to be a professional dominatrix anymore. You know, maybe if you only worked with kink-friendly clients who totally understand the uh, ins and outs of being a professional dominatrix, that would maybe solve a lot of issues. Because, you know, because one, if you just work with kink-friendly clients, then you absolutely could have that upfront conversation by the way, I'm a therapist, I'm a sex therapist, and I'm also uh, a, a dominatrix. Just to let you know, I will never blend the two jobs, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then number five, of course, as I've been saying, never blend the two roles. Never have clients who hire you as a professional dominatrix and vice versa. You're just always making sure you keep that real, that real separate. Again, I just want to point out that it would be very similar to if you are also working as a bartender or a waiter or a car salesperson or even a podcaster. These other jobs uh, make it uh, somewhat, you know, it raises the chance of a potential dual relationship occurring outside of the therapeutic office. And it doesn't mean that we can't do those things. It just means we have to really think about it to uh, minimize and, or eliminate harm to client. That's, that's, that's the main issue. All right, so I hope that answers your question. Let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. And become like Patron Adam from Terrytown, New York, or Jennifer from Miami, Florida. Ooh, Miami. Fancy. Samantha from Galetta, California. Alessia? Alessa from Maryland, Rockville, Maryland. Tom from Shoreview, Minnesota. Keith from Grand Falls, Virginia. Great Falls, Virginia. Sam from Seattle, Washington. Hey, what do you know? Actually, I'm looking at your address. You live not too far away from me. <laughs> I probably actually drive by your place all the time that I think about it. Um, Ashley from Saint L Lake St. Louis? Lake St. Louis, Missouri. Wow. So there's a St. Louis, Missouri, and a Lake St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Good for you, Ashley, um, for confusing me on that one. 
So yeah, become a patron and be like those cool people. So here's another email from Mabel. Mabel wrote in, uh, I'll just summarize her email. She was talking about how, so on the podcast, I must have said something, and I vaguely remember this, something along the lines of, well, you know, teenagers, they never want to be in therapy. I, I usually say this in the context of, um, you know, like, well, you know, when you're working with teenagers, they never want to be in therapy anyway. So you have to try to make it fun for them. Like you have to self-disclose more and you have to play games and kind of loosen them up because, you know, teenagers, they hate therapy. Or I might say something like, well, you know, teenagers, when they show up to therapy, they're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Because, you know, some teenagers are like that and kids for that matter. They'll show the you know, the parents will force them into therapy they come into your office and they're just, they just, you know, they're, they're not into it. And so I, I said something along those lines and then Mabel wrote in and, and she's like, um, you know, actually when I was a teenager, I really liked therapy. I actually sought it out and I don't even think my family wanted me to go. So I, you know, I'm a little confused about your blanket generalization that teenagers don't like therapy. Um, you know, what's going on there? And I am, abs- she was absolutely right. I, if, you know, when I do that, I am absolutely uh, committing a mistake. There are plenty of teenagers who love to be in therapy, plenty. Uh, and I would say it's increasing over the years because of the destigmatization of therapy over the years and the, I don't know, the liberalization of, of Seattle. And so there's plenty of teenagers in the Seattle area who love to be in therapy and who are doing so despite what their family wants them to do. I, early in my career, 20-some years ago, had a client who was gay and in the closet, and he would sneak out to be in therapy with me because he wanted to talk about coming out and the pressures of what it was like to be a a gay uh, man of color, a gay young, a gay teen of color in, you know, the 90s. And so, absolutely. So, you know, it's unfair that I do that. And honestly, I I gave it some thought because I I find this actually to be kind of a common trope among therapists. They will often refer to teens as universally hard to work with in in therapy. Or, I mean, that not no, that's not what I mean. What I mean to say is, therapists will often uh, overgeneralize that that teenagers don't want to be in therapy. Uh, it's not all the time, of course, but, um, you know, the overgeneralization that I committed isn't just to me. There are other therapists who do this, too. And so I, I thought about why us therapists would be that way, and I came up with the following three reasons. Number one is that teens often don't like therapy. Like, so it's it's not uncommon for that to happen. There's any therapist who has worked with teenagers has had at least one client, if not several, where they're just sitting through an hour-long session just staring at the clock while the kid refuses to talk with you and refuses to even play a game, refuses to talk about anything. You know, you're, you're bringing up Drake videos and they still don't want to talk. You know, it's like there's, there's no getting in. And it can be the longest hour. At, when I was early in my career, I couldn't really afford to terminate with clients because I needed the money. And so I would just endure those, or I needed the hours for internship or something. And so I would endure those sessions because, you know, I, I needed that hour, I needed that paycheck. And whereas now, if I had even five minutes of an episode or of a session like that, I would immediately terminate. Or I would, 
you know, talk with them and the family about. So unless this turns around, I don't think either of us are actually doing any good here. So, yeah, so that's one reason is that, you know, it's a legitimate concern or um, experience with therapists. Number two, therapists over some therapists like myself overgeneralize about these teens and they, they never want to be in therapy because therapists are hurt and have been hurt by many teens who have refused to participate in therapy. So it's not just the fact that the therapists have experienced teens who have done this, but the therapists such as myself, it can be very hurtful. As a therapist, you want to make a difference in the world and you know that you're open and that you're a confidential listener and you're talking to a 13 year old and you know that they have issues, you know, they, they were sexually abused when they were younger they don't like their parents very much. They're being bullied at school. They're struggling at school with grades. And they come to your office and you're like, man, what's up? And they're like, I'm not going to talk. And you're like, oh, well, that's fine. But, you know, just to let you know, I'm not your teacher or your parent. I, I'm just here to listen. And I anything you tell me, I'll keep confidential. Unless you tell me you're going to kill someone or kill someone else, kill, kill yourself, or you're going to talk about child abuse. So I'm not going to tell. So you could tell me that you smoked crack yesterday. And I, you know, I not only can't tell, but I, I wouldn't want to, because I want you to trust me. Just crickets, crickets, session after session. And, and then you're just like, so what do you want to do? You want to, you want to just play a game? You want to draw? You want to watch YouTube? You want to play a video game? Like we could do anything you want. And you're just trying anything you can to get this person to not make the hour a complete you know, horrible, boring time for you. I mean, I, one of the very first clients I had was like this. And I was, you know, about half an hour in, I'm like, I'm staring at this person and I don't know what else to do. And by the way, this, this session was my videotaped session that was going to be watched in class later. So that was another factor. I'm just sitting there going, great. This is, I can't wait for my supervisor to watch this videotaped session. And this is back in the day when he actually had a gigantic VCR camera, like, you know, on a humongous tripod in the corner of the room. But anyway, so I, um, I, uh, halfway through this session of just staring at the client while they refused to engage with me at all, I just tried to find any book that had any reading material. And the only book that was on the shelf was this book called Where to Turn, which is this book that just has like a bunch of referrals, like, you know, 50 different chemical dependency agencies, 50 different domestic violence advocates, 50 different lawyers who work with, you know, sexual abuse. And so it was just, it was just like a Rolodex book, you know, and I, I'm just, I'm just reading these names because it was like, I was so bored out of my mind. It's, you know, so as therapists go through that experience, it can be real. It's not only just annoying, but it's also hurtful because I want, I'm trying to help, you know, and I'm, and it's a, it feels like a rejection, right? It feels hurtful to me. It's like, how come you can't see me as the nice, confidential, good listener that I am? Why are you rejecting me? It feels rejecting. And of course, you know, you figure that out and you say to yourself, it's not, has nothing to do with that. They're just suffering and they're shy or they have reasons not to trust me. So you don't personalize it that way, but you can't avoid it not hurting a little bit, especially when you're a young therapist. And when you feel hurt by that, then you want to strike back. And so one of the ways that therapists can strike back is to sort of overgeneralize and insult teenagers and essentially create an ageist insult. 
Number three is ageism. There is absolutely ageism in our society and in our industry against teenagers. We like to make fun of teenagers because we want to try to, we want to say that we're superior to them. So it's the same way in which white supremacists, when they feel insecure, they want to make fun of black people. It's the same way when heterosexual people are insecure and they feel like they need to attack a group of, of people, they will attack gay people. You know, they'll say, oh, gay people are so this and so that, or, you know, white supremacists, oh, black people, they're criminals and they're stupid and this sort of thing. But in reality, it's the white supremacist and the heterosexist who actually feels bad about themselves. Well, in the same way, when older people feel bad about themselves, they, they'll look to various different groups to attack. And one of the groups that is easily attackable is young people, you know, millennials or whatever the next generation is, you know, they're all, they're all stupid. They're all looking at their screens all the time. And, you know, they, they're dumb these days and they're entitled and, you know, everyone gets a participation trophy and, you know, there's just the, these phrases that get thrown out, you know, oh, all black people are criminals and uh, they don't know how to have cohesive families and, and they, you know, they're inherently crazy and savage or I don't know what the fuck people say. But anyway, there's just certain refrains that people say against teenagers. And one of the things that we might say is like, well, they're all terrible kids who don't want to be in therapy. They don't know the worth of therapy. And uh, that's an ageist, you know, thing. And so when I do that, I am committing those. Um, those are the reasons why I'm probably doing it. It's because of uh, ageism and a insecurity in me and a need to be superior to another group. And also the um, hurt that I've experienced from thousands, I don't know, thousands, probably hundreds of sessions in which I've had to endure a teenager who was at the very least being extremely resistant and at most just completely refusing to participate at all week in and week out. <laughs> it can be really hard. Again, particularly when you're first starting out and you need to have that hour. Um, you know, like I said, now I, I, I haven't had to endure a session like that in probably, man, I don't know, like 12 years, maybe longer, maybe 15 years. So um, so it's really something that plagues you at the beginning of your relation or beginning of your career. So yeah, uh, Mabel, you're right. I was probably being unfair and know that many teens love to be in therapy. All right, let's go on to another email. All right. This email, this next email is from patron Christina. Christina writes, hi, Dr. Honda. Hi, hi, Dr. Honda. Hi, Dr. Honda. How do you compartmentalize all the different aspects of yourself? For instance, you still see clients in your private practice, but then you're a professor with students and you're a supervisor and you're a podcaster. What happens when all those worlds collide? You must have clients who find out about your podcast and listen, and then they realize you present a different side of, side of yourself in your podcast. For example, issues like self-disclosure, cursing, talking about pop, pop culture, divulging your attitudes about various topics, things that I'm assuming you normally don't bring up in a therapy session. And you must have students and supervisees who also also interact with you, but are also but also hear you as a podcaster. How does this change the dynamic with these people? How does everyone respond to you once they know certain things about you? How do you respond differently within all of these roles you play in various people's lives? 
Do you think there are pitfalls to clients and students and to new therapists having access to another version of of you? Do you even think of yourself as these distinct different people, or is it easy for you to slide from one role to the next? Also, which you is your favorite you, therapist, professor, supervisor, or podcaster? End of email. Yeah, interesting question. I get this occasionally. I'll answer the last question first. I, it's hard, you know, I, I think a cop-out answer that I'll give is that I can't really choose which is my favorite. Incidentally, I'm also in a band. I'm a, I've been a musician for most of my life, and I've been in various different musical outfits, bands, and other kinds of, like, electronic situations, you know, session musician and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I'm making it sound more glamorous and more uh, better than I actually am. I'm, I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a guy in Seattle, just another dude in Seattle who play, who plays in a band. It's pretty typical for Seattle dudes, my age, particularly to, to be in a band. I'm currently in a band in which we cover, um, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to perform the first Strokes album, Is This It, from 2001. The Strokes is, are one of my favorite bands and, I got a band together and we performed the first album and I thought we pulled it off. I was probably the weakest link in the band. I was the singer. Um, the rest of the band were fantastic musicians, just nailed every Strokes um, note. And that the, the Strokes music is deceptively difficult. The first album is a little easier than the other albums, but uh, but anyway. And now we're actually going into Radiohead. Anyway, I'm saying this because... Uh, I also have that role, right? And uh, clients could conceivably come to those shows if they found out about it. Uh, I've had supervisees come to my shows. I make sure that I don't pressure them (laughs) to come to my shows. I mean, so so one of the, uh, while I'm on this topic, I remember when I was starting out as a therapist and I, it was like right after graduation and my supervisor was having a baby and she uh, had a baby shower at work and it was like on a Saturday or something. Uh, m- normally it would be my day off. And back then I was working so much to pay off my student loans. I was working, you know, 40 hours a week at the agency. I had commute time, which could, could easily be like an hour. Cause I lived in Seattle, but I worked in a town called federal way, which was pretty far away from Seattle. And so it was a lot of time spent at the agency and commuting. I was also teaching at Antioch, and I was also uh, starting my private practice that I was doing on the evenings and on the weekends. And so my day off was pretty precious to me, and she invited all of us to uh, the baby shower. And actually, uh, you know, it's customary when you go to a baby shower that you bring a gift, right? And that was the other thing. I was dirt poor. I, you know, most of my money was just getting spent on interest alone on my loans and my credit card debt. I, you know, it was, it was a pretty bad situation for me. I pulled myself out of it because I worked 60, 70 hours a week and uh, my private practice was mainly what got me out of the hole. But anyway, at that time, things were pretty dire for me. And when she invited me to the uh, baby shower, I didn't want to go. And I mean, I liked her as my supervisor. I, you know, I, in fact, she's one of my favorite supervisors I've ever worked with. If you've listened to me talk about this, the various like 20 odd supervisors I've worked with, there's only like two or three that I, that I um, enjoyed at all. The rest of them were either mediocre or abusive. But 
um, which is actually quite common when you talk to clinicians and they give you like a, you know, a rundown of their different supervisors. There's a vast majority of them can be quite mediocre. Anyway, so when she invited me to the baby shower, I, because she was my boss, I felt like I had to go. And I remember thinking that this was essentially some kind of like HR violation to invite your subordinates to your own personal party and basically subtly force them to buy you a gift. And I'm, you know, she's nice. And if she would have known that I didn't want to go, she absolutely would have not let me go. But I wasn't secure enough at that time to say no. And so ever since then, I've been, you know, very aware of what I could do as, as a boss, just subtly, you know, forcing people to do things. And so I never invite people who work under me as supervisees or students or employees to my live shows. <laughs> Uh, for that reason, you know, it's just like, do not feel like you have to come to these shows. Having said that, some of my supervisees and students will discover that I'm in a band or something and they'll, they'll show up and, you know, it's fun. Anyway, so, I, so I'm also a musician and that's, that's another role to sort of add on to this situation. Um, so, yeah, the cop out is I can't really um, decide between the different roles. I mean, being a therapist is so core to who I am. It's, and it's so gratifying to have us. I mean, I, I'm at the, I don't know, I'm, I'm at this stage of my career, I guess, where every session feels good to me. There were points in my career when I was working with, uh, shall we say a wider array of clients where I couldn't say that about every session. There were some sessions that were just like, Oh, well that was useless or geez, I think I failed that one. Whereas today, I feel like every session, there is a significant amount of things happening, and I um, could could never give that up. That's a, that's a incredibly um, important part of my life, and I I hope to do that until the day I die. And the meaning of that is is so huge to me. Uh, being a professor, similar thing. The ability to reach out to a student, to help them develop, to make them feel safe, to challenge them, to see them grow, to support them. That's huge, huge importance to me because, and I guess it's similar to being a supervisee or a supervisor. Those roles, I also get so much, I get so much uh, meaning from because a lot of times these people are telling me about their fine work that they're doing with their clients. And all I can think about, although I probably should mention it more often, <laughs> is how much they are do- how much they're helping the world. You know, they they're doing that work with those with those clients and they're working really hard to help these people and I'm supporting that. And that is incredibly um, meaningful to me. Um there are aspects of being a professor that are definitely not my cup of tea. Uh, again, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast. When you're a professor, people often just think you teach because that's what most, when you say you're a teacher, you, you imagine that's what you do. You teach, right? Well, professors by and large do very little teaching actually in comparison to the amount of work they do for the, the organization, the university. I go to lots of meetings. I, I, I'm in charge of outcomes. So I basically do uh, program evaluation or research for 
our program. I'm, I, you know, I survey graduates and alumni and, you know, instructors. So, so I have to find out if the instructors in the program are happy with the program, for example. I survey uh, new students about their, you know, their experience going through admissions. And so I spend a, a good deal of time uh, developing that outcomes program and facilitating it because I, I have people who have to administer these instruments and, you know, data entry. And then I have to make sure that's all going well and I have to sign time sheets and I have to write the reports and I have to report on the reports and I have to help people understand what the reports mean and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you wouldn't imagine if I said, oh, I'm a professor that I spend a lot of time uh, with databases and report writing. You know, you just don't imagine that, but I do, I spend a good, it's year round work that, uh, like I said, meetings, advising, uh, you know, I have a lot of students who are, you know, struggling. I had a, a couple students who, uh, failed a class last quarter. And so they reached out to me. They were actually accused of plagiarism. And so I had to deal with that. I had to look into it. Did they uh, knowingly plagiarize? What's the consequence for that? Do I need to initiate a consequence? And then the emotional side of that, because the student is you know, humiliated and terrified that they're going to get kicked out of the program. And so that causes people to engage in a lot of defensiveness and a lot of, um, you know, frantic behavior. And so I, I have to manage all that emotionality and figure out, you know, what should be done. And so, again, if I said I was a professor, you wouldn't, unless you know, you wouldn't picture that's what I do. Uh, in, in actuality, you know, teaching this, this quarter, I'm only teaching three hours a week, uh, which is actually, actually about half the year. That's all I'm doing is I just teach uh, three hours a week. And so... Um, so being a professor, I definitely could do without some of the, some of those aspects. Um, I, I volunteered to do the outcome stuff and I willingly and totally want to help students with their, you know, situations, but it's not super fulfilling to me to do all that kind of paperworky stuff and, uh, meetings and program development. It just, it, it's fine, but it's not as meaningful as being a therapist or a teacher or a supervisor. And you also you also ask about you know podcasting. What about that role? That being a podcaster to me, I mean, honestly, if I if I had to choose, you know, because I I thought about it when you emailed me, Christina, I was like, well, let's see. Another way to put this is if if I can only choose one of these professions, what would it? Which one would I choose? And I think I would actually choose podcaster because being a podcaster every episode has the potential to be something brand new, to talk to someone brand new, to, to learn something brand new, to get into something brand new. And it involves everything that is possibly related to psychology and, and things that aren't related to psychology. You know, we do episodes in which we just talk about, you know, a trip that we went on. And so the, so being a podcaster, um, you know, really, uh, fulfills my narcissistic supply needs. So, so there's that plus, you know, just the fun involved and, and how variable it is. Uh, so maybe, but I don't know, that seems like a really terrible thing to say, or an inaccurate thing, I should say, because I couldn't give up being a therapist. So maybe if I had to choose, maybe I'd choose therapist that that would be my number one thing. Um, yeah. 
anyway, so you also ask, so your main question is like, well, what happens when people find out about uh, your different roles? You know, a student find, listens to the podcast or a student comes to my, you know, live show or something or a uh, client hears about my podcast. And the answer to that is that the older I get and the more I progress through all the different roles that I'm in, the more all the roles start to merge together. So you, you mentioned cursing. You're just like, well, you know, you curse on the podcast and you self-disclose in the podcast. And, you know, is that a problem when your client might hear that? And the thing is, is I curse in session too. My, my potty mouth doesn't uh, stop at, at certain roles. I, um, if the, the one place that my potty mouth for the most part gets cleaned up is when I'm with my parents. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, my parents, I grew up in a family where we never swore. It was a very clean sort of wholesome house. And so my family doesn't swear very often. And so, um, I try not to swear around them, but I still do. But anyway, my point is, is that, um, I'm actually not that different in the different roles. The one thing that I am quite different, but I'm not, I'm not different, different. I'm just in a different sort of mode is when I'm with my clients, I am listening almost the whole time. Uh, I talk for sure. Um, in fact, I sometimes might talk a little too much, but I, I'm, if you saw me in session, you would see the client talking and you would see me listening. And, and if I had anything to say in, in the best of, you know, when I'm at the, when I'm, doing the best sort of therapy that I can provide. I'm I'm barely talking at all. I'm reflecting very shortly. But when I do talk, you know, I'll swear or I'll self-disclose. I I don't have a problem with that. Whenever I self-disclose on the podcast, I always think, what if a client heard this? And I always will, uh, I'll edit things out if I think that I shouldn't um, do that. Like, um, it might not be apparent to people listening to the po- to the podcast, but I would say I don't know one out of every ten episodes I will I will excise a good portion of the podcast just because it went into an area that I just don't want clients to hear, or I don't want anyone to hear, or I think I was being unreasonable. So in the in the old days, like five years ago. Um, I edited out probably 50% of the podcast episodes because at the time I didn't know how to wrangle the co-hosts and myself to stay on track and to not delve into things we shouldn't be talking about in public. Whereas now I, I'm, I'm, I'm after 10 years, I can edit as I go I, in my, in my head. I know what I should and shouldn't say essentially, but sometimes that doesn't go well and I'll take stuff out. So um, but having said that, everything that I'm saying, you know, uh, it might seem unprofessional, right? It might, for some people, they might be like, wow, you know, when you're on the podcast, you know, you're real kind of flip about some things. You, you curse, you self-disclose, you're uh, very casual, uh, you will um, make fun of people or something. And that doesn't seem very professional. And certainly, like in session, I'm not going to be talking about the same sorts of things. But at the same time, if a client heard this stuff, it it wouldn't, in my estimation, harm the therapy with the client. It does make things a little interesting sometimes because most of the, most people don't listen to podcasts and, 
and the you know vast majority of the human race d- doesn't listen to this podcast. So it's a very very few people actually listen to this podcast. And the same goes for the for my clients is that um, I in fact right now I think only one of my clients listens to the podcast sometimes. I have past clients that listen to the podcast. Um, I know, at least I think that's what's happening. But um, in the past, I've had clients who were more involved with the podcast. Like I've had actually people reach out to me because of the podcast and hire me as a therapist, people who live in the area. And yeah, you know, it's interesting because they'll come to session and they'll be like, so I listened to, you know, your episode yesterday and you talked about this and that. And it, it throws me off a little bit because... I have to think, oh, what have they absorbed about me that, and how did they absorb it? Because I wasn't there. When they were listening to the podcast, I, I'm not there witnessing or, um, you know, monitoring how they're reacting t- to that episode. Because maybe they hated the episode and, and they were very upset at me during that episode. You know, it's bound to happen. And it, it puts me off a little off kilter for sure, but it's not something that I can't account for in the session. You know, I just, I just monitor it or just, so, oh, you know, how did you, how did you feel when you listened to that episode? Oh, I, you know, I don't know. It was just interesting. So, um, so I guess the, uh, there, again, there's, to summarize, there's two answers. One is, is that the older I get, the more my roles become essentially the same thing. Um, as, as a supervisor, uh, I'm definitely similar to my podcast persona you know, and a teacher. So my teachings, the the one thing that I'm probably the most different is when I'm a therapist. So when I'm a supervisor and I'm a teacher, I'm pretty casual. And I, in fact, <laughs> I swear so much as a professor that last quarter, um, I announced to the class that I was trying to cut back. And so I told them to ding me every time that I swore last quarter. And so, um, so yeah, I'm pretty casual and um, pretty. I don't know. I go on rants when I'm a when I'm a professor. I mean, you know, I'm in charge and I have a lot of power as a professor, and so I can make people listen to me rant about whatever I want to. <laughs> I try to limit it, but you know, I'm sure the students uh, don't enjoy those kinds of things all the time. But you know, they don't seem to say anything. Um, although I did have a student come up to me after class last quarter, and he's like. I can tell you really like it when we have time in the class where we can just talk about whatever. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along those lines. He's like, I can tell your favorite style of teaching is when you can just riff, you know, when you can just improv teaching moments instead of having to follow a script. And although I don't necessarily agree with that, it apparently looked as though I was really enjoying myself, you know, uh, ranting and raving about whatever I was ranting and raving about. Having said that, as a therapist, you know, I rant and rave too. You know, if I have a client who is being, um, you know, who works for Microsoft, for example, and is being made to work 60, 70 hours a week, and that's the culture at Microsoft, and the they're, in order for them to get ahead, that's what they have to do, and they just think it's normal, you know, and, uh, you know, they a deadline is coming up, and that's just what they're going to do. And so I'll go on a rant about how, uh, this country is founded uh, in the last, you know, there were major movements in this country that were decided upon the people and and politicians eventually came around that labor has to be protected and that our well-being 
depends on us having a work-life balance that in the Seattle area and the tech industry in particular seems to be completely uh, avoided and not paid attention to. The, the notion for some people working in Seattle that they just work 40 hours a week is absurd to them. They're just like, no, no, I, that's, that wouldn't work. I'd get fired, you know? And that is very upsetting to me that the capitalists somehow uh, tricked everybody into believing that labor uh, laws and, you know, the 40-hour work week was something to be ignored and that, uh, you know, you could, you could live a healthy life and, uh, st- and work 60 hours a week. And I'm here to tell you, you can't. You cannot live a healthy, healthy life and work 60 hours a week consistently. That's just not going to work. Now, like I was said, when I first started as a uh, therapist, I did that. But it was only for a couple years, and it was something I needed to do. Anyway, so I'll, I'll rant and rave about that. I've, rant, I've ranted and raved about that very topic with a number of my clients because I have a, a lot of clients over the years who are in that situation. So I don't know if that answers your question, really. Let's see. What other questions did you have here? Does it change the dynamic? Yeah, kind of, but not really. How does everyone respond? Yeah, um, some people will respond a little uh, weird. Like... Um, uh, see the thing the thing about being a podcaster is you never know who's listening to your podcast you know someone could be sitting next to you on the bus and they could be you know your biggest fan and you wouldn't know you would get on the bus and you'd sit down next to this person and they know so much about you and you don't even know that they even know who you are and you know that's an exaggerated example but it's similar like I'll be in the elevator at my university and, uh, you know, a student will just turn to me, I assume they're a student, I don't even know who they are. And they'll be like, hey, I listened to your episode yesterday, or hey, I'm a big fan of the podcast. And I'll be like, huh? And, and it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, strange, it's, it's gratifying to know that people are listening. But it's also disarming to me, it's sort of anxiety provoking to me, because I'm just like, oh, crap, you know, do they hate me? <laughs> what, what, you know, it's just like, it's very, it's, it's like going from complete privacy, you know, you're in an elevator with someone and, and it's just like, you know, you, you just have this assumption, like you don't know me and I don't know you and we don't know anything about each other. And I, I go from that mindset, which is, you know, a, a typical, normal, rational mindset to walk through the world. in. I go from that to suddenly they might know things about me that I don't know about myself that I forgot, <laughs> you know, and, and just boom, like all of a sudden it's like, boom, you know, this person knows a lot about me. And so, like I said, it's fine, but it's also, um, it changes the the dynamic, you know, suddenly I'm like, oh, oh, cool. You know? And, um, I have to, I don't know. I feel like I have to, you know, honor them somehow. And I never know how to do that. You know, I I feel like I should thank them. Thanks for listening. Or I don't know, maybe I should just say that. (laughs) But anyway, the point is, is that when I have a student or a uh, client who says, oh, I listen to your podcast, yeah, it does it does change things a little bit. But, you know, I, I don't really think that it um, harms anything. In fact, you could argue it enhances things, um, especially for my supervisees and students. For some of my students, I actually assign podcast episodes. Like, you know, I'm, doing, I'm teaching a class next quarter in which I'm going to lecture about projective identification. And so I should just assign, you know, the episodes that I've done on projective identification, uh, I usually say you don't have to listen to it because not everyone 
has a uh, sort of stomach for that kind of thing, you know, to where you put earbuds in and listen for an hour. So I don't assign that, but I say, you know, if you want to uh, do that, it's a good way to learn. It's probably better to do it. it, You probably learn more listening to this podcast than reading the book chapter on, you know, projective identification is just my opinion. But, But really, the most important point that I probably should make is that when people start out in this profession of psychotherapy, they tend to, including myself, think that therapists need to be a particular sort of person, a a very uh, uptight person, a very uh, non-reactive or robotic is my word that I would put. Of course, that's not the way I saw it when I first started out. And in reality, uh, the vast majority of therapists that I know, once they're 20 years into their career like I am, they are very natural as a therapist. They're not robotic. They're real. They're genuine. They're in the room. They're, they're reactive. The, the difference is, is that over time, you learn what sort of reactions are okay and what sort of reactions are probably not helpful. So whenever I get questions like this from people, I suspect that the, the question is actually coming from a assumption that therapists need to be extremely, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say professional because I'm, I'm still professional as a therapist, but, um, or somehow like, you know, you know what it is, I think is, and I remember thinking this when I was a novice therapist, that I had a thought that therapists were somehow elevated. They were somehow like, you know, these very special people who uh, just, went into a mode of extreme helpfulness they or technique or something, you know, like Fritz Perls would enter into this world of like, okay, now I am gestalt therapist or, or Carl Rogers would step into this role of now I'm going to be unconditionally positive regardee. And I, so, so there's that notion of like, okay, if I'm going to be a therapist, I have to enter into this mode of, now I am a therapist and the tone of my voice changes and I'm much more relaxed and I'm much more this, you know, and over time, like I've been saying over the 20 years that the real me that, you know, as I'm just hanging out at home or I'm on the podcast or something is starting to become more like a therapist. And my therapist me is actually starting to become more like me, if that makes any sense. And so, uh, uh, I'm before when I was starting out, it's probable that I wasn't as good of a listener as I am today in my general life. And so, you know, that's, that's my real self or my, you know, casual self becoming a better listener, more em- empathetic. I, you know, I often talk about how, uh, or I hope I've talked about this before. I know I've talked about it with students that the, Way, the best way you can be a therapist, one of the best things you can do is not just try to have empathy for everybody, but actually have in your heart empathy for everyone, people that you would normally not have any empathy for or any compassion for. Like if you're a Democrat, Donald Trump or Brett Kavanaugh, actually having in your heart love for these people. And I'm not talking about like pity 
I'm not saying, oh, yeah, I feel bad for them. No, I'm talking about actual compassion for them. Actual compassion for Charles Manson, for example. And as a therapist, I trained myself to do that, not through beating myself into submission, but finding things that I can connect to everyone about, that I can have compassion for everyone about. You know, Charles Manson was suffering greatly. And when I think about that, I feel bad for him. Now, I'm not saying that these people should be, you know, allowed to do bad things to people. That's not what I'm saying. But having actual compassion is one of the best things you can do as a therapist. It, it makes things so much easier. You have much less countertransference. It erases probably 95% of harmful countertransference because a lot of harmful countertransference comes from this struggle inside of you when you hate your client and you're trying to stop yourself from hating your client. And that can be very, that can, that usually takes a huge toll. But also, obviously, the treatment is going to suffer when you hate your client, or you can't connect to them. And their relationship is going to suffer, which is the most important thing for therapy outcomes. And so I did that not because, I mean, I, I probably did that partially because I just thought it was a good idea in life. I think it's a moral position to take that everyone has something that we can have compassion for and that empathy to everyone is the best way to live, I think, for me and others. And so, um, so I, so I had that ethic or that moral in my personal life, but I, I much was, I was much more, uh, uh, I thought it was much more important as a therapist to have that point of view that completely bled into my personal life. You know, I don't, Donald Trump isn't my client, right? And yet I can empathize with him. And so, um, so that's those two, those two selves coming together, my, my casual self and my therapist self influencing each other to the point after 20 some years where they're the same thing now. I can't differentiate between my therapist self and me self. <laughs> and so, um, so I think that, uh, I hope that answers the question is that being a therapist can mean you can be quite casual. I mean, some, someone to, uh, in fact, you could argue the best sort of persona you can have is one of, of, you know, is quite casual, unless you're the sort of therapist that doesn't want to do that, which is totally fine. I, I like to think about Irvin Yalom, if you know him. I have a strong suspicion that when he works with his clients, he doesn't change who he is. I have a feeling he's just him, right? And he's similar to me in that, I mean, he's much more famous, but he has a book, a memoir. He's had, he has many books um, that he completely self-discloses from beginning to end. Some very difficult things in his life, his conflict with his wife, um, you know, growing up as a kid, he, you know, he's self-disclosed and he's still a therapist and a supervisor. And he used to be a, you know, instructor. And I, you know, so he seems to be nailing it pretty well. And I'm sure his clients aren't harmed. He, he's written, he's been in documentaries talking about his personal life. And so, um, I, I just think that when you're starting out as a therapist, you just have this assumption that things need to be very compartmentalized and, and they don't really have to be. You, you have to think about it, obviously. And maybe one thing, one piece of advice is 
until you know how to decompartmentalize yourselves in a way that won't harm your clients, you should probably keep things compartmentalized. So, yeah. So, hope that answers your question, Christina. Thanks for asking. All right, let's just adjourn there. That's that episode in which I rambled about various different things. I hope it was uh, worth your time. That is it. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.